Well, good morning, church. It's uh, exciting to continue our study in the book of Hebrews. And if you're like me, um, th- that section we just read together, it's a, little, it's a little convoluted, yeah? Any of you feeling a little bit like, what did we just read? Um, that, that's exactly right. You're reading it correct. If you're a guest with us today, by the way, if you want to follow along, which I'd encourage you to do, in the, the Bibles that are in the seatbacks, you can find Hebrews chapter 9 on page 1006. So if that's helpful, I mean, we put it on the screens too, but sometimes it's nice to just hold a Bible in your hand. So that's where we're at. We've been in this study in the book of Hebrews, and if you were with us last week in chapter 9, the author is, is uh, now sort of at the pinnacle of everything he's kind of been building up to, this idea that the Lord Jesus is a greater high priest than any high priest that came before him. And in fact, all of the priesthood and the vessels and the tabernacle worship and all of those things, those were essentially just a sign. They were a copy and a shadow pointing ahead to the, to the great reality of who Christ is, that he's a, a greater high priest mediating a greater covenant in a greater reality is, the, is sort of at the heart of what the writer's trying to say. And in fact, as we got to the end of our text last week, in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 13 and 14, he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the, the purification of the flesh... He says, if these things take care of the external, and they, they did something for the sort of the outward condition of man, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And if you weren't with us for the study last week, I would encourage you, it's so crucial and so central to everything else we're studying in Hebrews, it's worth going back to the website this week and listening to it online or what, you know, as you jog or whatever. Um, this idea that the, the sacrifice of Christ is so much greater and, and that if, if the work of the, you know, the shedding of the blood of, of bulls and goats could do something for the external but really couldn't touch the internal, it couldn't touch the conscience, how much more powerful and great is the blood of Christ as both high priest and sacrifice, his own blood shed on our behalf, how much greater the impact that that has in our lives. And so when we come to 15, the first word there is therefore, a transitional word, in response to the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ. He says, therefore, he, that's Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Think about that. That Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That he's the in-between. He's, he's the go-between, so that those who were called can receive three really powerful and incredible words. The promised, right? That what God had promised to his people, the promised eternal inheritance. He mediates this new covenant. He is the one that, that intercedes for us, that is the mediator and the reconciler because of his blood shed on our behalf. And that, that idea of Jesus as a mediator is important. We've seen it earlier in Hebrews chapter eight when we were studying that. But I don't want us to miss it. It's, it's really important to have the right person speaking on your behalf. Someone who actually is effective in what they do. We, uh, I don't know if you've ever had to go through arbitration or you've ever had to deal with mediation. That can be complicated. But it's important to have someone who knows what they're doing and who's capable of doing it. We, uh, I, I've not actually yet been through arbitration, although I'm sure some of you have some grievances you want to bring up with me. But... Uh, we, my wife and I did have kind of an interesting situation that happened to us one time when we were on a mission trip in Mexico, um, which is timely as we've just had the opportunity to commission all of these, but we were on a mission trip in Mexico. We were down working at Rancho Sordomudo, which is a home and school for deaf children in, outside of Ensenada. The missionary there is a great friend of mine, a guy named Luke Everett, who's hard of hearing himself, and uh, we were down serving my wife. This was in 2001. My wife was pregnant, very pregnant, with our second son, Hank. 
And while we were down there serving and doing ministry, we'd taken some college students down. While we're down there, uh, my wife started to have some complications with the pregnancy. And so we were hundreds of miles away from home, away from our doctor. We were kind of freaked out and scared. And so we're praying, but we're also really nervous about what's going to happen with this little baby that's not born even yet. And um, so we're trying to figure out what to do. And Luke Everett, the missionary, he says, well, I, I'll take you to my doctor. You know, I'll take you to my doctor in Ensenada. And we're like, well, that's, that's better than nothing. You know, he's at least vouching for this doctor. So we go in to Ensenada. We go to see this doctor. The problem is the doctor in Ensenada doesn't speak any English at all. Like not, no, no English. And we don't speak any Spanish. And so there's kind of this chasm between the two. We have this great need. We're scared. We're afraid. We're young parents. We're feeling uh, terrified, really. But we don't know how to communicate what's happening or like what's going on to the doctor. And so our friend, Luke Everett, the missionary, who's hard of hearing, he agrees to sort of be the in-between, right? <laughs> I can tell you're already sort of understanding how this was absolutely the most awkward conversation of our lives, right? Because this, uh, this doctor from Mexico, he would say something in Spanish, and I, I couldn't even repeat it if I wanted to. And it was really fast and really quick. And then what would happen is that our deaf missionary friend would go, what? And then uh, the doctor would have to repeat the thing in Spanish, to which then he would look at us and say, um, he wants to know, like, you know, when's the last time you went to the bathroom? And I'll, I'll tell you, that was the least intrusive of his questions, right? That was, like the most, that was like the most safe for church of all the questions he asked us. But what was really awkward is he would say, like, when's the last time you had to use a bathroom, or that you went to the restroom? And, uh, and then we'd say, well, you know, we'd give him the answer. And then the missionary would go, what? And then we'd have to shout that information. And then he would repeat it to the doctor who would write it. And that's how the whole conversation went, right? It was not great. It's very important to have the right in between, right? The right guy in between. The one thing we did, and we're blessed by the one thing we had going for us, is that at, regardless of the communication difficulties, Luke, my friend, the missionary, loved us. And he, he was willing to wade into that awkward and difficult situation because of his affection for us, because of his concern for our baby and for the health of my wife. He waded into this really weird situation because he cared about us. The idea that Jesus is a mediator between God and man is important, and you don't want to rush by it. In the course of our study in Hebrews, there's so much that's cyclical, and there's so much that comes up again and again that when you hear something you've already heard, there might be a temptation to go, yeah, 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 we get it. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Don't rush past. As we come to verse 15, slow down and think about what he's saying. This summary is so beautiful. Therefore, he, the Lord Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's a lot of big words there, but essentially what he's saying is, is somewhat what he's already said, that Jesus died, that he was both high priest and sacrifice, sacrifice in order to redeem us, to rescue us, to buy us back because we were dead and lost in our sin. He does this as a mediator between us and God. And the writer then goes into uh, like essentially like three quick illustrations, and I don't want to get too bogged down in them because they're complicated. They're, there's a great study to do there on your own if you want to look at it later, but he's going to give us three sort of quick illustrations to just reemphasize the point of what he's already said. Looking in verse, uh, in verse 16 and 17, he says, um, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it 
is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The first illustration he gives us is the idea of a, of a last will and testament. And he does that for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the word here that's originally translated covenant in verse 15, it's the very same word. The, the original word is the word diatheke. And, and that word essentially could be translated covenant or testament or will. So the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has this idea of a covenant, of a will, of a testament in his head already. And he says, Jesus, through his death, has activated this promised eternal inheritance. And he goes, we all sort of understand in common terms that a last will and testament doesn't go into effect until the person, the benefactor, dies, that it's activated by death. He's trying to give us a picture of what it means that Jesus would die in order to be our mediator. Now, admittedly, that illustration breaks down in a couple of ways, because Jesus didn't remain dead, right? So like, for instance, if your grandfather willed you a speedboat and died, and then you got the speedboat, if he were to wake up in the morgue, he'd probably take his speedboat back, you know what I'm saying? You don't get to keep that. Uh, Jesus isn't dead, he is risen. So the, the illustration of a last will and testament only works up to a certain point. Don't try and play it out too far. What the author's trying to say to us is that our promised eternal inheritance is bought or redeemed through the death of Christ. That he is the benefactor. It's not the result of a negotiation. It's not the result of, of uh, some kind of a trade or a payoff. That in the same way a human being would leave a last will to give something to his descendants, God has graciously given to us resurrection life activated through his death. It's not something that we buy or pay for. And obviously already he's talked about the promised eternal inheritance. So he's got, he's got inheritance and death sort of already in his head. He's trying to paint a picture for us so we get it. Well, I think we do. He moves on to two other illustrations specifically about the use of blood in the Old Testament, right? So much that the writer has done is comparing the ways in which we see these types or these copies, these flashing signs in the Old Testament that were pointing ahead to a greater reality. And so now he does that in verses 19 and following. Well, starting in 18, he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, if you want to read more about this, in the time period of the giving of the, uh, of the covenant at Sinai, Moses uses blood to consecrate this, this accord, right? And it's something that God dictates. You can read more about it in, uh, in Exodus chapter 24. If you want to do further reading, that's a good place, one of a couple places to read about this. But the writer is saying in this example and the next, blood has always been used as a picture or a type of purification. It's always been used towards the purification. In fact, the next example he gives, and I know we're moving quick, but stay with me. He says in verse 21, in the same way, he, that's Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, right? So he's saying both under the covenant of Sinai and in the tabernacle worship, you can read about that in Leviticus 16, blood was used as a purifier, we understand the use of blood from our history. Now, for you and I, who didn't necessarily grow up in the Hebrew tradition, that might be a little gross, it might be a little weird, it might be a little confusing, but what he's saying is, the shed blood of Christ on our behalf shouldn't surprise you, because blood has always been used as a pointer to what Christ would be capable of, in order that those who are called would receive the promised eternal inheritance. And look at what he says in 22 to kind of sum this up. 
He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Almost everything under the law is purified with blood. He's just given two examples of that. And then he says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. The shedding of blood is essential to the forgiveness of sin. Now, if you're like me, as I was studying this, and as I've looked at it even in the past, there's kind of a question that comes up where I go, yeah, but why? Like, why does there have to be the shedding of blood? Like, I, that seems kind of gross, and it seems kind of mean, and it's kind of, you know, like we would take bulls and calves and whatever, and we, would, and we would shed their blood in order to purify. Like, what's the, what's the why? You guys know me already. I like the why. I don't just like it sort of be laid out. Well, the Bible's actually really clear about the need for the shedding of blood. When we look at, um, when we look at a passage like Leviticus 17, 11, God himself says... For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There's something unique and precious about blood in that it sustains life in some ways. It's not the the total way in which life is sustained, but God draws this really clear picture between life and the blood. He says, I put that blood in you for the sake of making atonement for your souls. That purification is important to God, and it happens through the blood. But my next question then is, well, why is it different in the way he calls us to interact with each other and the way he calls us to interact with him, right? Because the Bible's really clear, and even in the teaching of Jesus, we see Jesus say, forgive those who've wronged you, right? Turn the other cheek. Give grace and love to those who've wronged you. And it doesn't say in the Bible that like, hey, when your wife is mean to you, you should forgive her and also kill a cat, right? Like, uh, like... Not that that would be bad, right? I mean, we could. <laughs> this is interesting. The first service also turned on me at this point. So it's interesting that uh, we got a lot of cat lovers in this church. I did not ask that question before I took this job. So it's fine. God doesn't say, hey, show grace after there's been a shedding of blood. Be forgiving to one another and kind to one another after atonement has been made. Make sure somebody's animal gets sacrificed. What's the difference? Why does he tell us to just forgive, and yet when it comes to reconciling with God, there is a shedding of blood that's required? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the reconciliation and the forgiveness that, has, that, that happens among us is happening among equally broken, lost people, right? One of the things that all of us have in common is that all of us are sinners. It says in Romans chapter 3, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as a very baseline, you and I all start as broken, sinful people who failed to live up to the purpose for which we were created. God created us for worship. We talk about this a lot. But you and I on a daily, if not moment by moment basis, we fail to worship him in our thoughts, in our, wor- in our words, in our attitudes, in our deeds. So when you and I wrong each other, which we inevitably will, and when we have conflict and frustration, there is a call for us to extend grace to one another without a sacrifice, because even in our wrongdoing, we're on equal footing as broken people. But that isn't true in the relationship between God and man, because God is holy. Hold that word for just a second and think about it. It's a weird word, but it essentially means set apart. God is holy and perfect. He's perfectly loving. He's also perfectly just. And so in our brokenness, the Bible is really clear about the fact that because we're sinners, we are separated from that holy God. It says in Psalms 5 that the wicked can't dwell in God's presence. 
We are cut off from God because of our sin, and because it's not a peer-to-peer relationship, because we're not both broken on even footing, there has to be the shedding of blood for purification in order to make relationship possible. In order for us to be reconciled, there has to be the shedding of blood because God is holy, because we're separated from him otherwise. The Bible teaches that in our sin, it says in Romans 6, that the wages or the consequences of sin is death, right? And, and that doesn't just mean physical death. It means spiritual death. That because of our sin, we are separated from God, who is life and light, right? We're separated from God, rendered spiritually dead. The problem with spiritual death is that someday our bodies are going to quit, right? Your heart's going to quit beating for one reason or another. Your lungs are going to quit breathing. Like all of us are going to die. And if we're spiritually dead, separated from God in that moment, we enter into eternity fixed in that position. Separated from God forever and ever and ever. Spiritually dead forever. And as much as you might hear that and go, well, that sounds terrible to me. I don't want that. Guess what? God didn't want that for you either. God loves me and he loves you. He never created us to be separated from him. He always created us to have a relationship with him, to know him, and to love him, and to be loved by him. And so this chasm, this separation, the holiness of God and the wickedness of man, our separation, is precisely why there has to be bloodshed in order for the remission of sins. He says it really clearly here in verse 22. Excuse me, back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin because we're not on equal footing with a holy God because in order for us to have a relationship with him we have to be purified. That is why Christ enters in with not the blood of goats and bulls but with his own blood shed on our behalf. That's why he is the mediator of this great covenant. He goes on to give a couple more examples here. He says in verse 23, of Hebrews 9, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He goes, look, you you understand the old system where the the high priest would enter into the tabernacle or the temple, which was just a copy of the reality. But Jesus has not entered into a copy. He's not a shadow. He's not something that's pointing ahead to some greater reality. He is the greater reality. He is the greater sacrifice. He is the greater priest that all of human history has been pointing to. And he now enters into, not a copy, but heaven itself and stands before the face of God. Why? On our behalf. You want to talk about a a mediator? You, You want to talk about a God who loves us? The Lord Jesus, recognizing that we were lost and dead in our sin, was not satisfied to leave us in that state, but came to the earth with a purpose to rescue us from sin and death, to redeem us through the sacrifice of his blood in order that we would be reconciled to God, in order that we would be spiritually resurrected from sin and death. He says, Jesus isn't walking into a copy. He's not walking into a copy. He's walking into the reality on our behalf. Not only that, look at what else it says. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year without blood, not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. I wanna read that to you one more time and I just want you to let it roll over you. Think about what this means. He doesn't have to go in again and again as the, as the old high priest had to do. There is no repetition. It is a once for all thing. It says this, he has appeared once for all. Why? Why only once? Why doesn't he have to go every year like the old high priest do? Because that was a copy and a shadow. Because that sacrifice was insufficient to pure us from a conscience towards dead works. Jesus doesn't have to repeat this work. He doesn't have to do it again. It is a completed sacrifice because of his holiness, because of his perfection, because of the greatness of his sacrifice in the life he lived. It is not a repeatable necessity, right? Jesus doesn't have to be sacrificed again and again because he wasn't a copy or a shadow. He was the pinnacle. Jesus doesn't have to go again and again. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. What does that mean? Well, The sacrifice of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ is the pinnacle of human history. It it is the event that all of human history up to that point was leading to, the death and resurrection of Christ. It was all leading to that point. And since the death and resurrection of Christ, since he procured for us through the shedding of his blood this resurrection life, which he gives us by his grace, everything after that is, is basically frosting on the cake. That is the end of the age. And now we eagerly await his return, which we'll talk about in a second. But he says, Jesus has entered once for all. He's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I, uh, I like movies, and I remember distinctly watching, uh, some of you have seen, there's a new King Arthur movie, I'm not talking about that. But way back, like when movies were still black and white, there was a, a great version of the Camelot story, right? The Arthurian legend. I don't remember who the actors were, but I remember as a high school student watching this movie and being fascinated by it. I like knights and all that kind of stuff anyway, but there's this one scene, I don't know how much you know about King Arthur, but there's this incredible scene in this old movie. I don't even know if, they, if it's in the new one or not because I haven't seen it, but if you know the story of King Arthur, you know that he fell in love with this, uh, this woman, Guinevere, right? She became his wife, and they essentially laid out all that Camelot would be. That whole Knights of the Round Table, the equality of that, a kingdom of peace and justice, right? They, they sort of laid that thing out together. And then later in the story, we find that Guinevere cheats on King Arthur with the number one knight, Lancelot's his name, right? The, the king's best friend and the number one knight in the realm. She has an affair with him. Now, when that happens, they get caught. And here's the deal. Guinevere's not just guilty of adultery. She's not just guilty of infidelity. She's technically guilty of treason because he is the king, right? And so I remember watching the black and white film. There's this incredibly moving scene. And I, I was like shocked by it. But there's this moving scene where they've arrested Guinevere, she's bound, she's marched out to the, to the, like the, the castle courtyard, and she's tied to a stake to be burned there. And they show Arthur, and he's in this upstairs, he's in his, like his chambers, and he's looking out through this tiny window, and he sees the love of his life bound and tied to a stake to be executed for treason and infidelity. And the guards come up and they say, sire, you have to come down and preside over the execution. And there's this conflict that happens in Arthur because on one hand, here's this woman that he desperately loves, that his whole life has sort of been centered around, that that he absolutely adores. But on the other hand, she's broken the law and he is the physical representation of the law. He is the one who has to uphold justice. If he doesn't uphold the justice in that moment, if he goes, ah, she doesn't have to live according to the law because I love her, right? Let's just call bygones, bygones and move on. Then the law means nothing. 
The law is meaningless if he doesn't uphold it. And so there is this tension, this conflict in Arthur where he he loves his wife and he doesn't want her to die, but he also has to uphold the law and he is paralyzed. Can I tell you that the God of the universe faced a very similar situation with us, dead in our sin, that he loves us desperately and he doesn't want us to be separated from him, but he must uphold the law because he's holy and just. The difference between Arthur and the God of the universe is that the God of the universe knows how to fix the problem. You see, the Lord Jesus comes to earth and he lives a perfect life. He takes our sin upon himself. He sacrifices not an animal, but his own blood. He dies on the cross, not because he deserved to, not because he earned that. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. In the sacrifice and the shed blood of Christ, what we see is a meeting both of his love, a demonstration of his love, and the meeting of the law. The meaning of the requirement that there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Had Arthur marched down into the the castle court and taken the, the bindings off of Guinevere's wrist and put them on his own and died at the stake, that would be a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. Where both love and justice meet. That isn't what happens in the movie. Lancelot breaks in and he rescues Guinevere and they run away. Sorry, that's uh, just so you know. It's not, it's not a perfect illustration. I'll own that right now. It's not perfect. He says in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 20, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter nine, verse um, 26, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then it says this, and don't miss it, last two, last two verses in this chapter. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I I want you to think about the gravity of 27. It says this in 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once. I want you to think about the word appointed. Can I tell you something? That according to, the, according to the word of God, there are no accidental deaths. There's no death that you stumble into. There's no death that sort of accidentally happens. What it says in the scripture is that our days are appointed by God. That there is a death for each and every one of us and it's appointed by God. We don't necessarily have a sense of when it will occur. And from our perspective, sometimes death does seem accidental. But I want you to understand that according to the scripture, in the sovereignty of God, we have an appointed set of days. In fact, Psalm 90 will say, help us to number our days so that we can live with wisdom, right? That each of us is going to die. There is a day coming that is appointed to us in advance. You think you're scared of dentist appointments, right? Right? Each and every one of us have an appointment with death that is set by God. Allow the gravity of that to settle on you because as I've already said, if you and I get to that appointment, right? If we get to that death appointment, whether it happens in a car crash or in the, you know, the sleep of old age, no matter where we get to that appointment of death, if we have not been redeemed by the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, we go into eternity fixed in that position forever and ever and ever. There's a day appointed for man to die once. That's also important, that once. Why? Because there are people in the world today that would say, oh, you know what, live a good life, you'll be reincarnated as a pony, or you can be, you know, like there's some good stuff that can happen. Listen, the Bible says that isn't true. The Bible says there aren't multiple deaths for you and I, that it doesn't happen on repeat. There is one death appointed to men and women. We have this one appointment with death. And then look at what it says. It's appointed unto men to die, and then after 
After? What's, I mean, I thought you said we were dead. Yes, there is an afterlife for all of us. Understand this. Each and every one of us that are human beings created in the image of God, we are eternal beings. We're not infinite. God is infinite. He has no beginning and no end. But you and I are eternal. We will live forever. We will either live forever in the presence of God, having been rescued from sin and death, saved by his grace, or we will live forever separated from God, spiritually dead in a place called hell. Each of us are appointed to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment, a giving account, a reckoning. There is a day where each and every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account for what we did with the thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes that he's given to us in our days. And the problem for me and the problem for you, if you really think about it, is that sounds awful because I haven't done much with my thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. I've done much that is selfish, and I've done much that is greedy, and I've done much that is hateful, and I've done much that is wicked. I've spent a lot of those appointed days living for myself, and if I have to stand before God, according to the scriptures, and give account, I'll have nothing to say but that I am spiritually bankrupt, that I bring nothing to the table, that I am broken and wicked and spiritually dead, and so that judgment would be terrifying, if not for what else it says in the text. You see, the text says it's appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. After that, the judgment. The the scriptures sort of back this idea up. They clearly back this idea up. It says, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. We see even in Hebrews 10, which we'll study in a couple of weeks, Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Can I tell you, I, I know you don't like hearing this, right? There's nobody who loves the conversation about spiritual death and eternal separation from God. There's nobody like, man, let's hear that one again, right? Not, it's not anybody's favorite message, but it's a biblical reality. The great news is the Bible doesn't stop with Hebrews 9.27. It doesn't just say, hey, guess what, mankind? There's a day appointed for you to die, and after that, the judgment. Deal with it. No, it says this. Back to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Why isn't he dealing with sin the second time? Because it's finished, right? It's already done. He doesn't have to repeat it like the Old Testament prophets. But Jesus will appear a second time for what purpose? To save those who were eagerly waiting for him. Jesus came and he dealt with sin. And he will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's the picture here? The picture is that that judgment that comes to all of us after our appointed death that that judgment isn't something we have to face alone. It's something we need a mediator for, right? It's something that we need a reconciler for, that Jesus comes again to stand on our behalf, not to deal with sin, but to rescue us from sin and death. 
that by his grace he extends to us resurrection life. Those who believe, those who trust in him, who turn from their sin and turn to Christ can be made spiritually alive. And someday your body will still kick it, right? Your heart's gonna quit beating or your lungs are gonna quit working. And the great news about resurrection life is that if you have been saved by the shed blood of Christ and his resurrection on your behalf, you then go into eternity fixed in that position, forever in the presence of God. Now Jesus is coming again to save those. But note what it says. Who does he save? He doesn't just save those who uh, pray the magic prayer or who give the most in the offering plates or walk the most old ladies across the street. What does it say about those who are being saved? It says he comes to save those who were eagerly awaiting him. What's that supposed to mean? Well, there are a lot of people who sort of don't want to go to hell, right? They don't want to have to pay the penalty for their own sin. And so they go, yeah, yeah, whatever I got to do. You want me to repeat a thing? You want me to read the four spiritual laws brochure? Well, I'll do whatever I got to do just so I don't have to go to hell. That, that, that isn't really what we're talking about here. It's not just using Christ for what you want to get, right? It's not just using him, but it's recognizing that he loves you and he came and he died for you. And so there is an eagerness and an anticipation. I think there are many people who go, yeah, I'm really happy I'm not going to hell, right? And now I hope Jesus just stays away for a while so I can enjoy the world as much as possible until then, Right? But there should be an eagerness in us when we understand the true gift of resurrection life, when we understand what it truly means that he came once for all to shed his blood on our behalf, there's something that changes in the heart of a human being that is anticipatory, that is eager for the return of Christ who comes back to rescue us, that there is no fear of judgment anymore. Romans chapter five, verse nine says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus came as a mediator to rescue us from sin and death. A greater high priest of a greater covenant in a greater reality. But the truth is that if you have not put your faith in him, then you're spiritually dead where you sit and you'll be stuck like that because you're incapable of rescuing yourself except for the gracious gift of resurrection life that Jesus extends through the shedding of his blood in order to to bridge the chasm between the holiness of God and the brokenness of men and women. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I wonder if in, the, if in the quietness of this moment you might just do a little bit of an inventory in your own life. Because I would guess that there may be some of you here who are regular church attenders. Maybe you have a, a pretty decent working knowledge of the Bible. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian family. Or you've been on a mission trip. You know a lot about the proximity of religion. But I would guess that there may be some of you here this morning who've never put your faith in Christ to rescue you from sin and death. And you may look into your own life this morning and recognize that where you sit currently, you are separated from God and you will be, according to the scripture, you will be forever if there isn't some reconciliation, some mediation. But the great news for you is that there's no reason for you to remain in that position this morning. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, my call to you today is, will you trust him? And in the quietness of your own heart, right where you sit, if you simply call out to God and say, Jesus, I I get that I'm broken. No, duh, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I don't want to be separated from you. Will you rescue me from sin and death? Will you mediate on my behalf? If you fling yourself upon the mercy of Christ this morning, the Bible teaches that as the, the Spirit of God draws you 
You believe and you can be saved. I know that's an old-timey word. It's an old churchy word, but it's the right word. You can be saved, rescued from sin and death today. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, will you come to him? Will you fling yourself upon his salvation and his mercy? God, I pray that you would move in this place and that in each, in each spot where there may be one or two, someone who's never trusted in you, that you would draw them to yourself and that they in this moment would believe and be saved. That they would cry out to you and be transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.